I like to think of myself as a pretty normal guy. I work hard. Um, I've had a pretty interesting career, uh, both in recording studios and in uh, uh, professional audio. And over the course of that time, I've had the opportunity to to meet and work with, I guess what you'd call some some pretty pretty interesting people. Uh, whether it's Will Smith or Quincy Jones or or even Miles Davis or Stevie Wonder, um, it's been a, an interesting cast of characters that I've been privileged to uh, to have interacted with. But one name that always stands out is Michael Jackson. And when people find out that I was part of Michael's team, really for more than 18 years, and, uh, and then a good chunk of that was spent building a place called Neverland Valley Ranch, it's, it's definitely a, a conversation starter. Not something I talk about every day by any means, but... Uh, when the topic comes up of, you know, famous people you've met or whatever, it definitely tends to uh, generate just a bit of curiosity. My name is Brad Sundberg, and this is In the Studio, the podcast. tell the story right, you really have to start at the beginning, and uh, I'm going to spare you a long, uh, long and uh, boring intro, but just tell you that I, I really did not grow up, you know, as, as a hardcore J5 fan by any means. Um, you know, I knew, and I knew some of the songs, uh, and then Off the Wall came out, uh, and then Thriller, and, and I definitely got more and more intrigued by Michael Jackson, but um, but it wasn't like a quest, you know, where I set out to meet him or work with him or anything. Um, but you know, we'll we'll talk about uh, some of the albums in in future podcasts. But right now, I want to kind of skip ahead to Neverland. It was during the Bad album, um, which was primarily in 1987, when Michael came into the studio. And I was one of the assistant engineers. Um, I was kind of working my way up the ranks, and uh, and we were on a on a very comfortable, <laughs> kind of what I would call a first name basis by then. Uh, I made Michael laugh. He made me laugh, and uh, we weren't best friends. You know, we weren't running the clubs together or anything like that. But uh, but we had a good, uh, trusting, working relationship. And as time went by, I started figuring out that he really had trouble finding people that he could trust. And uh, so for whatever reason, he, he came into the studio and he had this book and the book was called the <laughs> Sycamore Valley Ranch book. And it was, it was like a real estate book. You know, when they, when they sell high end real estate, sometimes they actually publish a book. And I think you can find it on eBay. You can search it out and then they float around out there. And, and I swear this is true. He he brought me to the kind of the back corner of the studio, and he was showing everybody the book, Quincy and Rod and Bruce and everybody. And um, but he pulled me aside, 
And he showed me the book, and he was really excited. And he said, can you help me with some projects up here? And I said, what, what kind of projects? You need me to build a barbed wire fence? I don't, I don't really know. And, and uh, you know, probably joked about it. And he said, no, I want to bring some music up there. And, and I know you know how to build systems. And uh, do you think you could help me? And I said, sure. Having no idea what, <laughs> what I was signing up for. So uh, fade out, fade in. Um, I drove up to, uh, up to the ranch. And, and in the early days, I mean, it was, it was a, a ranch. I think it was, you know, before Michael bought it, you know, it was a horse ranch, might have been a, I don't know, a cattle ranch. Um, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. There's a lot of people listening that <laughs> have studied it more than I have. And uh, got up to the ranch. And I don't think he was there the first time I went up. I could, I, forgive me, but I, yeah, I, I don't remember 100%. But he wanted, he wanted speakers in his bedroom. And so I drove up to the front of this, uh, this uh, Tudor-style house. And, and it was big, but it wasn't, it wasn't like crazy big. It was, it was just a big ranch house, um, two-story uh, I think it had three bedrooms upstairs and a uh, master suite downstairs and uh, kind of a nursery upstairs. And then, uh, you know, I think some, you know, kind of some maids' quarters. And then it had a few guest suites or guest houses um, kind of across the driveway. So, I mean, it was beautiful. I mean, I, I, I was definitely, it was 2,800 acres and I was only seeing the main house on this visit. Back then, his personal assistant, and forgive me if I'm, if I'm getting the title wrong, but her name was Norma, Norma Stikos. And, uh, and Norma used to come to the studio once in a while, so I kind of knew Norma. And uh, so I'm pretty sure Norma and I went back to his bedroom, and he was just kind of moving in. I mean, there was furniture in there, but, but you could tell, you know, there were still, you know, the, the, there were things that were happening. And so he wanted music on either side of his bed. I mean, and Michael likes good music and he likes it loud. But it's a bedroom. You know, I can't roll in, you know, some giant uh, concert speakers in there. I suppose I could, but, you know, I, I was trying to walk that line of being cool and uh, having it sound good. So ironically, and maybe this is a plug, but there's... The studio that I was working at was was called Westlake Audio. That's where Thriller was recorded and Bad was recorded. And Westlake also makes speakers. The same Westlake Audio. They had recording studios and they they made uh, studio monitors. And they had this this uh, this Westlake Audio speaker. I still remember it was called the BBSM Four, and uh, it wasn't a huge speaker. Um, maybe the size of like a carry-on suitcase. Um, it sounds amazing. Um, so I so I said, why don't we do a couple BBSM4s on either side of the bed and put them on these swing arms <laughs> so, so Michael can swing them away from the wall and towards the center of the bed, and it's almost like this giant pair of headphones. Well, Norma may have rolled her eyes, but uh, but Michael loved the idea. So I built this uh, pretty intense uh, 
bedroom system and had you know amplifier and all this equipment stacked up on his bedside table and these big speakers and he could swing them in. Well, he loved it. Um, it was a it was a home run and he he would call me. I, I swear this is true. He'd call me at you know two three in the morning, and you know how do I play a cassette? How do I you know I, I want to listen to a dat? And so I I literally had a little cheat sheet next to my bed, just for when Michael would call me. So I in my sleep I could say uh, you know make sure you know this button is pushed and that button is and then all of a sudden the music would just come blasting through the phone. <laughs> And he'd be laughing and say thank you and hang up. So that's kind of how it began. Um, so I was working with Michael both in the recording studio as well as at the, now all of a sudden I was kind of the ranch music guy. So when Michael's in the studio, I would be in the studio. And now to be clear, Bruce Swedeen was the engineer. Um, I don't take anything away from Bruce. On the Bad album, we also had uh, Umberto Catica helped out quite a bit. And uh, so it was definitely a team effort. But I was one of the assistant engineers. And then if Michael, and I don't remember all the timing of it, but if he was going to take a few days off or, or whatever, he'd tell me, you know, can you come up to the ranch, you know, next Tuesday? And I'd say, sure. So now, if you don't, it's kind of funny because my I was talking I've got four daughters and I was talking to my twenty five year old daughter Maddie about uh, Neverland, and I said you know to people over maybe the age of I don't know thirty five forty, Neverland Ranch is a pretty well known entity. People associated with Michael Jackson with Neverland Ranch, and uh, and I said do you think your friends have any clue what it is? And she said no, <laughs> not a chance. So. If you are under a certain age and you have no idea what Neverland is, um, I want to kind of give you a little introduction into it. And uh, and if you're over a certain age and you're a big MJ fan, then uh, maybe we'll, we'll uncover a couple tidbits together. In the early days of Neverland, Michael was, and if memory serves me right, he went on the bad tour. And it was kind of during that time when things really kicked into gear. And I don't know if if uh, we were FedExing in plans. I don't really, there's parts of it that I'm just not, I'm a little sketchy on in those early days. One of the first projects that he wanted up there was a train. And I think in the early days, he had a little tiny train that kind of drove around the guest houses. But that was before my time. So he, he wanted a, a, a train from a theme park. And if you go to the Santa Barbara Zoo, they have a little, kind of a little kitty train. And he bought one. He, I guess he saw it in Santa Barbara and liked it and said, I want that at my ranch. So I'm not going to go into all the descriptions of what gauge it is or anything, but it's not like a full-sized Amtrak train by any means. It's a, it's a kitty train. I mean, it, you know, it's got, uh, I don't know, three three passenger cars with benches and uh, and. I, think it ran on a, a little diesel, might have been a propane engine, diesel engine, I can't remember. Anyway, so next thing you know, there's this, uh, this amusement park company that's installing this train, and, uh, and then Michael wanted music on it. Well, I come from, I mean, I've done 
home systems. Uh, at this point, I was very familiar with recording studios. <laughs> I've never really done music on a train. But Michael said, Brad, can you do it? And I'm like, sure. So I did some research. I figured out we're probably going to have to use like a car system. Next thing you know, we came up with, with a, a music system for a train. And it actually sounded pretty darn good. Um, I don't know, we had like six speakers in each car, and I think I had to learn about 70-volt audio distribution and all kinds of stuff, but, um, but it worked. And it worked, and it worked, and it worked. So I'm like, well, I guess, you know, we, we want to play Michael Jackson music on this. No, 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 that's, that's forbidden. Um, so Michael had a very specific playlist uh, actually, I take it back. I take it back. On the train, he kind of gave me free reign. He said, I want it to be classical and I want it to be pretty, but um, but he kind of let me choose. So I don't I don't really I don't have a huge classical background, but if you if you kind of remember those those CDs from the 80s that were like, you know, the the best of Debussy or the best of uh, you know, just kind of, you know, pretty classical music for people that don't know squat about classical music. That's what I bought. I bought a couple of those and put them in the, the changer and that's what played. And he liked it. So on it went. So soon after that, uh, and let me just be clear about something. When people hear about Neverland Valley Ranch, a lot of people don't really know where it is. And if you don't know the geography of California, California is a big state. Um, so Neverland Valley Ranch is not in Los Angeles by any means. It's, it's about two to two and a half hours north of LA, depending on, on where you're, where you're starting from. So when I would go to Neverland, uh, we lived, uh, more over in La Crescenta, a little bit closer to the Rose Bowl. For me to get to Neverland would take about two and a half hours. So it's not something where I'm going to run up you know, at uh, one in the afternoon and be, be back by four. It doesn't work that way. When, when I went to Neverland, it's, it's an all day. Uh, get up early in the morning, drive all the way up there, work all day, and then come back. And there were times when I would wind up staying up there just because there was so much to do. So Neverland was growing like crazy. We had this little train and the train would take you from what's called the Ornate Gate, uh, which was kind of on the, I guess you'd say, the very southern tip of the ranch. And it would, uh, you would climb this little train, and it would take you past the, the main house and then up to this big grassy area that was right. Um, the ranch is kind of, it's a valley. It's between... Uh, two mountains. Um, it's in the Santa Barbara mountain range. And the middle of the ranch is this long, beautiful valley. And from what I understand, that used to be used for cattle grazing and, uh, uh, you know, whatever livestock they had up there. And, but Michael had a bigger vision for it. Uh, Michael wanted that to be a, a park, an amusement park. There's, there's no other word for it. So this train would take you uh, through what would eventually be the park, and then it would keep going all the way to the far end of the ranch, which would eventually be the zoo. 
So this was no small endeavor. Um, we had a we had a contractor back then by the name of Tony Yurkitas, and Tony is a guy that just gets the job done. He probably stepped on a few toes in the process of that, but Michael liked him because he got the job done. Tony's a very creative guy, very talented guy, and uh, and Michael would just give him assignment after assignment, and so Tony might be pouring a cement pad um, because they just bought a, a, a carousel, you know, a big merry-go-round. But you can't just pour the pad. I mean, there's got permits have to be pulled and electricity has to be brought in. And there's just so many pieces to the puzzle. So there's stuff going on behind the scenes that I didn't know, I honestly didn't know anything about. But Tony is constantly, Tony and Michael's attorneys are, um, uh, I don't want to say constantly, but they're quite often dealing with uh, Santa Barbara County and getting permits, and what are you guys building back there? Why do you need a carousel? Why do you need a permit to keep elephants? And on and on and on. So all that stuff is going on where I'm not really part of it at all. All I'm getting is phone calls from Michael Jackson saying, um, hey, I'm putting, I'm putting a, a full-size carousel in the middle of my park, and I want music. So... When you've been around Michael World for a while, it, it doesn't take too long to figure out that he likes things done very well. He likes things to be bold and powerful and, uh, and in my case, loud. Um, he, he knows that if I'm going to build it and if he's going to give me an adequate budget, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound good because that's just what I do. So he wanted this, uh, he bought this beautiful carousel. And it's, it was from a company, uh, I believe, in Kansas City called Chance Rides. And if, if I understand it right, and I, I could have some of these details wrong, but uh, uh, I think it had three rows of animals. Um, and I think the outer, either the outer row or the the outer and the middle row were basically one-offs. Um, they were they were hand carved and and uh, and then the 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 molds were destroyed. It, from what I understand, maybe that's just a good uh, <laughs> good sales ploy. I don't know, but they were magnificent. I mean, there was the eagle and there was the uh, the lion and uh, and the, these were not your normal uh, you know Coney Island. Um, beat up horses. That's not the bag on Coney Island at all, but uh, it, it was a magnificent carousel. And you can certainly Google photos of it. Um, I should know where it wound up. Um, I, I believe it's still, it's still in existence somewhere. For some reason or other, I want to say Germany, but I, I could be completely wrong. But um, so once again, um, I went into a fair bit of uh, research on how to put music on a carousel. And if you go to, a, and I'm a big Disney guy, if you go to a Disney park, um, you know, they have the calliope or kind of that calliope type music. And it's it's soothing and it's, you know, it's very uh, reminiscent of, of turn of the century type carousels. 
And, uh, but again, I talked to Michael and he said, no, I want it loud. I, I want it. He used to have an expression. He'd say, hurt me, hurt me, Brad, hurt me. And that means he wants it loud. So now I had to kind of ease away from studio type, you know, uh, systems and into just straight full on concert. And so I built him this, uh, this JBL, uh, concert system. It was a combination of, uh, JBL, uh, subwoofers and, uh, and two way, uh, speakers. I, I can't remember. I want to say 4722s, but I could be wrong. Uh, so I think we had four of those, four of each of those. And then we powered the whole thing with kind of a combination of crown and, uh, and BGW power amps. So don't, I'm not going to get too techie on you. Don't worry. So if I, and then we had all of that, if you understand how a carousel works, which I had to learn about, um, a carousel, the, the horses and the platform spin in a circle, but they spin around a center, uh, kind of a center column that does not spin. So that part in the middle is stationary. So that's where you put all the speakers. Um, and so you really couldn't see the speakers. They, they were just kind of behind these, these, uh, these, these mirrors, I mean, the, the acoustics were just terrible, but, but it didn't matter. It was loud. And so, and it was just ferociously loud. So we got it fired up and, and once again, Michael, whenever we started a new ride, uh, Michael was there and he was like a little kid. I mean, jumping on it and just could not wait for that ride, uh, to be ready. You'll have to forgive me if some of the details have, have kind of, you know, blurred over time just a bit. But I'm pretty sure he called me and said, this is the song I want to play on the carousel. And he, he gave me very specific instructions. And it was kind of funny because it was a song by his sister, uh, Janet Jackson, called Black Cat. So I bought, um, I bought the Janet album and... Uh, brought it up there and, and, uh, loaded the CD. And then I, I actually had equalizers on the, on the system. And so I, before Michael wrote it, I spent a lot of time kind of EQing it to make, to make it sound as good as possible with all that vibrating aluminum and the motors and the hydraulics and everything else. And, and when it was done, I mean, Black Cat was just thunderously loud. So Michael came out and wrote it, and, uh, and he loved it. I mean, it, it, he absolutely loved it. And now, depending on who you talk to, a lot of people have been in Neverland through the years, and, uh, and they've said, oh, you know, I rode the carousel, and they were playing Heal the World, or they were playing... And that could be. I, I, I don't, you know, I certainly wasn't there every day. But my instructions were very clear that Michael would call out a, a very specific song and, and that would be that song for that ride. And the, the theory was that it sounded the way he wanted it to sound. And he didn't, and this is not to, this is no disrespect to the ranch employees. A lot of them are my friends, but um, he just didn't want people choosing their own music. He didn't want uh, the latest, uh, you know, Britney Spears song or whatever um, to be playing. He wanted it to be music that he chose. Now, some people have also said, you know, 
Well, I, I, I touched on this, but, you know, I, I used to hear, you know, uh, will you be there, you know, playing in the, in the bushes or whatever. And again, that's, that's, not how, that's not how it was designed. Michael was very specific about uh, the music that played everywhere. I mean, he was, you talk about hands-on. He was hands-on, and he hand-picked music and, uh, and how the place looked and how it sounded. This went on ride after ride after ride. Um, we put the bumper cars down, same thing, just a monstrous system. Um, on the bumper cars, we would drop the <laughs> the plastic walls. You know, the uh, it was kind of in a giant tent. We dropped the canvas walls. We had these these black lights in there. We had black lights. And we had strobe lights, and we had uh, a mirror ball and smoke. And you've never in your life been on bumper cars like these bumper cars. They they were uh, just full voltage, uh, as fast as they could possibly go. And loud. I mean, so on that ride, it kind of surprised me. But there's there's an artist by the name of Joe Satriani that uh, that Michael really liked, and he wanted a rock and roll ride. And so we just had Joe Satriani. It was a song called Summer Song, playing over and over and over and over again on the bumper cars. And that was that was just what he wanted. So the park continued to grow. We got uh, we got a ride called the Zipper, and that was I think Michael's favorite ride. It's kind of funny when I tell these stories in Europe. Um, Europeans don't know what that ride is. I think it's a very American ride. Um, but if you uh, uh, jump on your Google machine and uh, Google uh, amusement ride Zipper, um, you'll it's it's always yellow. I don't know why they're always yellow, but they are. And he had a giant. Uh, zipper ride and he he claims to have ridden it for i don't know 43 minutes or something um and same thing we put on just this monstrous sound system on there that would always play owner of a lonely heart now the first couple of times you hear it it's like wow this is so cool owner of a lonely heart i like that song the 28th time over and over it's like okay i, I get it i get it owner of a lonely heart can we please hear something else? But when I was there, uh, that's not what Michael wanted. He wanted each ride to have its own feel, its own sound, and uh, and I guess you could say its own its own theme song. So the zipper was definitely uh, owner of a lonely heart. Up the side of the mountain, and when I say mountain, I don't mean you know like like you know, Yosemite. But, you know, it was kind of these, the on either side of the valley were these, you know, fairly steep inclined uh, hills. And he wanted, he and I had always talked about a roller coaster, and it never happened. In fact, I was just talking to somebody a couple weeks ago that was at Neverland when she was very young. And she just insisted, she didn't insist, but she said, I, I remember a roller coaster. And I said, no, <laughs> there was... There was no roller coaster there. There may have been just a little tiny kitty roller coaster um, when when Prince and Paris were were born, but as far as what he really envisioned, that that never happened. He he and I kind of talked about an actual roller coaster that would kind of hug the side of the hill and use the the incline of the hill, uh, you know, for for its for its momentum. 
and it just never happened. Like, I can only imagine how expensive a roller coaster like that would be. And and to be clear, I mean, this was all. I don't know how how else to phrase it. This it was a money pit. I mean, it was my, it was Michael just throwing money into this place and buying rides and buying music and buying. I yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine the insurance and the power bill and on and on. But he loved it. I mean, it it genuinely was his home, and he loved to entertain there. He loved it to be his retreat, and it was like no no place you can imagine. Before long, uh, the little train was cute, but Michael was ready for something bigger. And so I don't know the whole backstory. And in truth, um, I have a feeling I'm going to do a couple more episodes on Neverland uh, in, in the future. And I'm probably, I've got a couple friends that I think I'm going to bring on. But we acquired this big steam train. And this was, I, it, it was an actual functioning steam train that I think originally came from a logging camp and then it had been converted into, um, I think, some sort of an amusement uh, train. I want to say in New Hampshire or somewhere on the East Coast. Well, Michael bought it and it went to a train refurbishing yard in the Midwest. And I, I think it's in Iowa. So, this was a big deal. I mean, even for... Now, I'd been up at Neverland. I was never full-time. I was never a full-time employee with Michael. He would hire me project by project, which is kind of the way I liked it. Um, I liked to do a project, finish it, and move on to something else. So by now, I, I had my own little company, and I was doing work for him. I was doing work for Elizabeth Taylor and for Quincy Jones and different people. And... Uh, and then, but these big Michael projects would come along and everything else would kind of be put on hold for, for a bit. And uh, we would do all that we could to take care of Michael. So he wanted, he wanted me and my, my assistant, my assistant was Bart, Bart Stevens. Bart's a great guy. Um, to go back and build, put music on this massive train in, in Iowa. So... We, we were back there with with a bunch of the electricians from the ranch. It, it was just it, it was just this motley group of Californians um, who kind of descended on this this uh, this train refurbishing place. And I mean, these are like hardcore railroad guys. These are not rock and roll. Uh, you know putting music in Michael Jackson's backyard kind of guys, but they were the coolest guys. I think they were so amused by this project that we, we really got to be good friends, and they were very helpful. The electricians, they were pulling just, I don't want to say miles, but uh, hundreds and hundreds of feet of, of little uh, rope lights and uh, just anything at all to make the train just glow. And then I think we had just this massive generator to run all the lights, and then Bart and I were putting on this huge sound system. And this was way beyond the little car system that we put on the little train. Um, this was this was real deal. So I designed a, uh, a system that was kind of based on like a JBL, or I'm sorry, a, uh, a Crown, I think it was like a, a VZ3200 or something like that. It was a big amp, and uh, had a mixer, and, and then we had a just a boatload of, um, I think they were like Altec Lansing speakers. Um, they were kind of weatherproof speakers, but they actually sounded okay. 
And, and the doggone thing worked. I mean, you're always kind of nervous. You know, you design it and it, it works on paper, but until you really get it, get it fired up with a generator and, and the, the locomotive and the whole thing, and doggone if it didn't work. And it actually sounded really good. So they hauled this train out from, uh, uh, from Iowa, and it was on the back of a couple of flatbed trucks. And it got to Neverland, and I want to say it was, uh, I want to say it was like in the spring, because uh, it was cold. And Michael wanted us to be there. I know I was there. I, I think Bart was there, too. I'm pretty sure. The electricians were all there, and, and these trucks come pulling in at night. You know, we've been there all day. And, of course, they're stuck in traffic or whatever, and Finally, they get there and they unload the trucks and, you know, backing the train onto the track. And it's it's just a whole, uh, I, I don't do this kind of stuff. I work in recording studios. But here I am, um, you know, on this cold spring night and Michael's just losing his mind. And, and we got the whole thing hooked up and got fired up. And I know it took a long time to, you know, I, I don't know for sure if we got it really running that first night. But... Um, but it was it was lit up and the music was playing and and uh, it they, we probably did get it fired up that first night and uh, and it was cold and I do remember those first couple of rides on that train <laughs> just <laughs> just be bundled up it was just freezing because uh, it was all open air and, it, and that train would move so Michael finally got his train uh, the train was called the Catherine uh, named named after his mom. And so this is, so Neverland just kept growing and growing. And you're like, you know, when, when is it going to stop? He wanted music everywhere. I, I mean, everywhere. And he would call me. Uh, Michael never really had a, a really firm grasp of, of sleep, you know, of day and night. And uh, so he would call me sometimes for real. I mean, at 2, 3 in the morning with an idea. You know, I'm going to, you know, I, I want music around the lake. <laughs> and I feel like it's a lake. How do I put music around a lake? Well, he didn't care. He just wanted it. So once again, if you have any interest whatsoever, there's a company based in Colorado by the name of Rockoustics. And I'm not getting any, uh, <laughs> I'm not getting any uh, uh, promotional nods from them or anything. They're really nice guys, but Rockoustics. And they actually... You know, I'd, I'd kind of seen these, but when I started at Neverland, that's when it just went into overdrive. They make these speakers that are actually shaped like rocks. And they have big ones, they have little ones, and they're not cheap. Back then, I, I could be could be wrong, but I want to say the speakers that we were using were about $600 each, something like that. And we weren't using four of them. We were using dozens, I mean dozens and dozens. The truck would pull up and it would be a for, it would just be forklift loads of more rock speakers. And uh, Tony, the contractor, would laugh and he'd, you know he'd be like, you know, looks like looks like Michael's got Brad doing more work. And so we would pull just again, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to say miles, but but hundreds and hundreds of feet of speaker cable and make it work. And there was almost something about, well, number one, I'm not a big professional AV company, and, but I was kind of becoming one. 
and Michael trusted me. He knew I wasn't going to take advantage of him, and he knew I would create a good product. And uh, and so I was kind of making it up as I went, and you know, make, and, there, and there was no Google back then. For for uh, you know, for you young twerps, um, you literally had to figure it out. You had to call people, and uh, I'm not going to say I went to the library, but. Um, you got advice, you talked to, you know, old timers that knew how to do it. So I really had to learn on the fly how to, how to put 20 rock speakers around a lake and how to set it up. So, uh, they're, they're in stereo and they don't blow the amp up. And so there's a little bit of trial and error, but at the same time with Michael, you don't want to make too many errors because he's, you know, he's, he's paying for it and he trusts you. And, uh, so yeah, I'll put music around the lake. Why, why not? So when I say lake, I mean, we called it a lake. It was, a, I suppose you can Google earth, um, his ranch and, and see the, the body of water in front of his house. But it was a, it was a good, it was a good, it was bigger than a pond. Um, it was, it was a good sized, uh, little body of water. And so we pulled wires and wires and got all these speakers installed. And and once again, he was very specific about what music played. I'll never forget. Um, I've, I've written about it before, and I might put it in the comments. But he created something called the Neverland Collection. And it was a collection of uh, music by uh, Debussy. And uh, there was some Disney stuff in there. And just beautiful music. I mean, Michael Jackson introduced me to, um, you know, to Debussy. And, and that's, that's just kind of cool. It's not my go-to music, but it was his and, and he loved it. And I still remember, um, I remember this like yesterday. I've, I've written about it a few times, but we finished the music around the lake. And it was a pretty big accomplishment. Um, I mean, I worked, we worked really hard on it. And you could, he had a swan boat that, that Bruce and B. Swadeen gave him. Bruce was Michael's primary engineer in the studios. And, and it's funny, I never, I never actually took the swan boat out on the lake, but I, I still had a pretty good idea. You could be on that lake and fire up that music and... It was spectacular. I mean, it was, was it Carnegie Hall good? Maybe not, but for being around a lake in uh, the San Inez Valley of, of uh, Southern California, it was pretty spectacular. And I'll never forget, we got it all working. It was like sunset. And, and I, I let Michael know, I think, you know, whenever I was done with a project, I would, you know, contact security or something. And I'd say, hey, why don't you have Michael come out and check this out? And Michael came out to the lake. And it was just him and me, just the two of us. And I fired up the music. And it was, um, pretty sure it was Debussy. And it was gorgeous. It was absolutely uh, goosebump gorgeous. And I'll never forget this. Um, he was standing two feet away from me and he just went into his own world and he closed his eyes and he stood on his tiptoes 
it's almost like I watched him grow in front of me. He just, he just stood as tall as he possibly could, and he put his arms out as far as they could possibly go, and he just let out this, this shriek, this, this howl, and it was, it was <laughs> scary <laughs> and cool and beautiful. And uh, it was just the, it was the peak of his emotions. And I was able to, to do that. And he thanked me and he laughed and he was, and I, again, I don't want to exaggerate, but he was literally physically jumping around and saying how much he loved it and just could not stop thanking me and hugging me. And it was amazing to get that kind of gratitude uh, from a job well done. It was pretty rare, and uh, Michael, was, Michael was good at it. So we got music, and, and it wasn't just the lake. I mean, that was only one... You know, it, it would just go on and on and on. We had music all the way... Well, let me, let me try and put this into perspective. When you first arrive at Neverland, you arrive at the, the main gate, the gate out on Figueroa Mountain Road. And it's, you know, it's a nice gate. It's, uh, there's a guard shack out there. And that part of Los Olivos... Um, there's a lot of, like, celebrity ranches up there. I think Ronald Reagan's ranch used to be not far from there. Johnny Mathis. I seem to think Farrah Fawcett had a place up there. It's kind of these hobby ranches of, you know, let's just be, let's be honest, kind of the rich and famous. Michael's was kind of the premier ranch. And I think there was probably a little pushback about how big is this thing going to get? Um, you know, are we going to have tour buses coming up here? And, and a lot of fans did, you know, start hanging out by the front gate. But at the same time, I think most of the neighbors were, were pretty understanding. So you get to the front gate, and you, you know, if your name is on the list, and, and trust me, my name was not permanently etched on the list. I mean, we were, we, were on a, we were in a good place, but I still had to be up there with a reason. I couldn't just show up. So if your name's on the list, you drive, um, I'm going to say it was like, you, you drive through the gate, and then you start driving on this dirt road. And it was easily five, four or five minutes of kind of driving up one side of a hill. And, and then you'd crest over the hill. And you'd start coming down the other side. And you'd see the ranch. All of a sudden you'd see the white fences and the green grass. And, uh, and it was spectacular. So then you'd come down that other side. And that's where you would see what's called the ornate gate. And if you've ever, once again, feel free to uh, grab Google and uh, <laughs> Google Michael Jackson's gate, and you'll see the big black and gold gate. Uh, that was the ornate gate. And that's where you really left uh, our world and entered into uh, Michael Jackson's Neverland. When that gate would open... Very few people actually drove a vehicle through that gate. Um, they would park their cars or buses or whatever outside of that gate, and they would walk in. And then that's where we would pick them up in the little train, 
and uh, and the train would bring them up into the park. Uh, so they got on the train, they're hearing, they're hearing music, my little uh, $7 CD of, you know, classical music for idiots kind of thing. And then they'd get up into the park, uh, or depending on what the, their day's events were, because uh, visitors to Neverland, it was, there were kind of two different types of visitors. There would be, obviously, Michael's personal friends, and, and that's a whole different, Michael's going to do with them whatever he wants to do with. Um, they're going to have the time of their lives, and, and they're going to have a, just an amazing experience. But for, you know, groups like from Make-A-Wish or uh, Children's Hospital or different things, um, they would have, or even schools, they would have a much more uh, regimented, you know, you, you can't have 200 kids just converging onto a ranch and not having some sort of, you know, program for them, who's going to be where and what's going to be operating. And uh, so it, it was a very structured setup when... Uh, when, when guests would arrive. So again, to kind of put it into perspective, if you stepped, if you left your car at the, uh, at the ornate gate and for whatever reason, <laughs> which makes no sense to me, decided you wanted to walk all the way to the theme park, I can't imagine you could get there in any less than, than 30 minutes. I suppose if you're jogging or whatever, you probably could, but it was a trek. Um, the place was big, and so you would uh, you'd get on this train, and then the train would take you uh, kind of you know along the the water, the lake. You'd hear all the music, and then you know it'd just be a much shorter path to wind up in the park, and then you kind of disperse and uh, and go wherever you wanted to go. So the big train served kind of a similar purpose. They could move a lot of guests. The, the ranch is like a long shoebox, and you can move a lot of guests up and down um, from the uh, kind of the, the entry side of the ranch all the way back to the zoo in the, in the very back. And I might actually, I think I'm going to talk about the zoo in an upcoming podcast because there's just so much to, to dig into back there. I don't want to, I, I don't want to do it an injustice. I will say that when you went, you know, when you're when you're on one of these trains and you're, you know, you're riding by these beautiful enclosures, and and I don't want to get into you know animal captivity. I mean that's that's a whole touchy subject, but uh, but Michael's animals were were remarkably well cared for. But you'd go by these amazing enclosures where there's there's elephants. <laughs> I mean there's actual elephants. Uh, I think Elizabeth Taylor gave, gave him one of the elephants. And again, I think I'm going to do a whole different segment just on the zoo. Uh, there's, I think there's a special guest I want to bring on to talk about that. Even me, I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, at that point, I mean, I was a moderately well-traveled guy. I mean, I've been to zoos. I've been a few places. But to be literally up close, you know, with an elephant or to go back to the giraffe enclosure and you'd run up the stairs and there was a, a deck that was at the giraffe's eye level and the giraffes would come over and you'd feed them and it's like this is this is amazing this is this is just unbelievable to, to you uh young pups 
who, you know, maybe you're hearing about Neverland for the first time, and I hope I'm generating a little bit of interest for you. It was well publicized. I mean, whether it's MTV or Oprah or, you know, Michael, Michael was, he was a shrewd, smart guy in his own way. And he kind of enjoyed building the mystique of uh, him and his ranch. And, and so it was very well known. I, I think in the early 90s, you'd be it would be unusual to meet somebody that had never heard of Michael Jackson's ranch or you know Neverland Valley Ranch um, it became a very famous place in its own way Neverland would take on an entirely different personality at night for I, I always felt bad you know if I'd be up there working because I'd be up there working with the guests I mean the place was so big it's not like I'm going to be in their way uh, and, and I didn't go up every day to be clear, I might go up maybe three times a month, uh, maybe, you know, maybe more if there was a big project going on. Uh, but, you know, I was I was very regular up there, but I wasn't full time by any means. I always loved being at Neverland at night. Michael did something. Now, let's let's be honest. Michael loved Disney and I, I love Disney. And that's one of the reasons that we got along so well. He knew that I was an annual pass holder to Disney. I actually proposed to my wife uh, at Disneyland on the uh, Mark Twain riverboat. I think he, he kind of enjoyed the fact that I was a little bit of a Disney geek and I loved the Disney way of doing things. And if you go to Disney Park, um, the whole vibe changes at night and everything lights up. and It's just, it's just a, a, a very special place. Well, Michael wanted to kind of bring that flavor up to Neverland. Um, he, he had gardeners, and, uh, and I mean, these were some pretty specialized gardeners. In fact, I, if I remember right, and I hope I'm not exaggerating, but at one point um, there were approximately 120 people on payroll at Neverland. Um, and that's, out, that's not including the contractors. I mean, I wasn't even included in that number. And most of them were, were, were gardeners or, you know, landscapers. And so there were constantly new flowers and new vegetation, and the place just looked immaculate. And for some reason or other, I seem to think that a lot of those same guys were the ones who were putting lights in the trees. Gigantic California oaks. And they're just gorgeous trees. And they're scattered all through the, the valley of the ranch. So Tony Urquidas would put these, these massive electrical circuits at the base of each tree. And this is before uh, LED. You know, this is still old school Christmas lights. And if you've ever seen like Tavern on the Green in New York, or that's, that's kind of my, my go-to, because that might have been the first time that I really saw a tree that was just covered in lights. These guys would, they would put just hundreds and hundreds of strings of white the little white twinkle lights on these trees i don't mean you know having a light every you know eight inches or whatever i mean like every inch of the tree i mean the tree would be white and all the way out the branches at night all those lights would come on and the theme park would be lit up the zipper and the carousel and uh all this stuff would be happening. And it was spectacular. I mean, it was just... I have so many memories of standing in the middle of that park, um, cold, you know, when the sun would go down, it would start getting cold up there. And I didn't want to leave. 
I mean, I just wanted to kind of stretch it out for another 20 minutes and just take it in. And I always kind of felt bad. You know, sometimes you'd see a school bus or a tour bus kind of leaving, you know, late afternoon. And and uh, it's kind of silly, but I would actually feel bad for them. It's like, oh, man, you guys, you know, you're, it's, it's only going to get better for the next few hours. Somebody asked me a question uh, about was there a time I ever said no or a, or a job that, that we could not do at Neverland. And I, I could, you know, I've got, to, I'm kind of watching my time. I could go on with this and I probably will go on with it in a couple future segments, but, but I'm kind of focusing on the park on this one. Michael got a Ferris wheel and, and like a lot of people, I've always had kind of a love hate relationship with Ferris wheels because um, they're terrifying. <laughs> you get to the top and if you're with some idiot that wants to, to rock the car. I mean, it's just, it's just terrifying. And I, I'm, I'm certain that the physics are such that it would be almost impossible to fall out of a Ferris wheel car, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a scary ride in its own way. Well, Michael wanted music on, on the Ferris wheel. I'm a, I'm a fairly smart guy. And so I kind of, I started brainstorming it. And, and if you understand even basic physics, you understand that it's a big wheel that's spinning around. And then attached to that wheel are 16 or 20 little wheels that are each holding a car and they're all spinning. So right off the bat, you know, running wires is pretty much out of the question. So then I kind of did a little research into, you know, having like discs and brushes and if there's a way that I can, you know, somehow get music, you know, through some sort of a mechanical, well, that's not going to work. That That's just crazy. So then we looked into like radios and batteries and it was just turning into this very complicated design that I knew was going to be a headache because I was going to have to constantly be fixing it and, and and I don't like fixing things as much as I like building them um, and I and Michael genuinely wanted it and, and we talked about it a few times and finally I just said I said you know what when you ride that Ferris wheel and I and I did ride it with him I said when, when you ride it and you sit up at the very top um, and you look down at this whole park and you've got the super slide and you've got the bumper cars and you've got the zipper and the carousel and each of them has their own music. There's just music everywhere. And then all through the park, you've got all these little rock speakers that are also playing classical music. And you'd think that it would just be a nightmare of hearing all that music at the same time. And for whatever reason, it worked. It, it just, it was just exciting. And, uh, and I said, when you're at the top of that wheel and you just take all that in and you've got the stars over your head and it's a cold night and you're kind of bundled up in your coat, I said, that's, that's all you need. We don't need to add more. Kind of let this be a place that's just take a deep breath and take it all in. And he agreed with me. He, he, uh, he actually thought that was, that was pretty cool. And it was. I mean, it was a place that... Uh, the, the Ferris wheel almost gets overlooked sometimes. It's, it's just such a normal, iconic thing in every amusement park and fair that you see. But it's kind of a place when you get to be elevated above everything else and just look down and take it all in. There's so much more in terms of 
you know, individual rides and music systems and all that. But uh, I will say I've been blessed, and, and I don't use that word lightly, I've been blessed to meet so many people uh, around the world. And uh, I've, I've been everywhere from, from Perth, Australia to Osaka, Japan, and uh, all across the U.S. and Canada and Switzerland and Europe. And uh, I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, being at Neverland, you know, was more amazing than being, you know, at the Jungfrau or uh, Berlin. But Neverland certainly has its place. At that moment in time, there was nothing like it. Uh, and, and I think a lot of it had to do with it was to be there was a treat. And, and I don't mean that to be in an elitist sort of way. But you had to be invited. I mean, in my case, I had to be invited to do projects for him. It was a place that was very special. And, uh, and I don't take a moment of it for granted. I probably can't talk about Neverland without at least mentioning, I don't even like to call it a movie, but a, uh, uh, I'll, I'll call it a complete work of fiction that came out a couple of years ago that also had Neverland in its name. And, uh, and it was a very disparaging set of accusations about my friend Michael Jackson. Um, I've never seen it. Really, I don't have any interest in, in watching it. I actually knew one of the, uh, one of the gentlemen in that movie and uh, haven't spoken to him in years, but uh, it's unfortunate that uh, they've, they've tainted that name, um, that place, uh, with their with their, uh, with their movie and their accusations. I'm a big boy. I'm, I'm not scared of any questions or, uh, or conversations. Um, it has come up, you know, you, you spent, Hey Brad, uh, you were side by side with Michael, uh, for a long time. What about that? What about, uh, those accusations? And I can, I can honestly say, from from the the core of my uh, of my bones, you know, <laughs> the bone marrow, there's not a cell in my body that believes that uh, Michael Jackson could hurt a child. It's 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 just inconceivable, and you know, and and when people hear about. You know, Michael, you know, well, he built this amusement park in his backyard, you know, as some sort of a, uh, a lure or something. It's, it's utter rubbish. Um, he, he built that for, for, for kids, for kids that are hurting uh, for a variety of reasons. And he wanted to do something. To, to give kids a place where they could just be free. My buddy Al Scanlon, we call him Big Al, and I'm going to have Al on an upcoming episode, so it's a little bit unfair that I'm, that I'm telling one of his stories, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think it's appropriate. Al tells a story about how every year Michael would invite the kids up 
uh, the kids that were able to be transported. And forgive me because I'm going to say the name wrong, but but it was the burn center in in L.A. that uh, that treated Michael uh, after his Pepsi accident um, on the Pepsi commercial. And he's always had a soft spot in his heart for for kids, uh, burn victims in particular. Al would tell me, and he'll probably tell you when I have him on, um, that this this. I don't know how many kids would come up, so I don't want to make up a number, but I'm going to say many, many kids and their nurses would come up from this burn center. And if you've ever, uh, if you've ever seen a, a burn victim, they can be terribly disfigured, and it's painful, and there's just endless surgeries. And, uh, and Michael would have these kids up and give them a day, a day when they could just be kids. And they could run through the park and go on rides, and uh, obviously, you know, with with nurses' assistance. And uh, and Al told me that, <laughs> and tears. That Al's a big guy, uh, but tears were streaming down his cheeks. And he said, "Brad, one of the nurses came up to me and said, there's something that I have to to tell you.' And she said, "We get invited everywhere." We can go to Disneyland, we can go to Universal Studios, we can go to Knott's Berry Farm. Everybody wants to help these kids. There's an amazing amount of kindness in this world for kids that have been disfigured and have been harmed. But she said, we can't do it because they get stared at. And it's not when somebody sees a child that uh, has been disfigured like that, even if they're not trying to do it out of a mean spirit, it's hard not to look. And she said, these kids, you know, they're, they go to a place like that, and it's almost like they're the attraction in a, in a zoo. It's just almost more painful to do that than it is just to stay in the hospital. And she said, this is the one place we can come where they're safe. And they can be kids. And Michael's right there in the middle of it. And he is laughing with these kids and riding with these kids and loving these kids. Um, like he should. So there's no part of me that can take that type of love and that type of uh generosity and somehow parlay that into oh here's my chance to to hurt a child the the math does not add up the funny thing about spending so much time with with a person um both in uh in the studio and at his home uh, literally in the most private parts of his home is you get to know him and you get to see you know their their likes their dislikes and uh and there was just no hint of a dark side and that's the truth i'm a dad of four girls and i am cognizantly aware of when something doesn't feel right there was none of that for you young pups that uh have never heard about neverland before i hope that's 
uh, at least a, a, an introduction to let you know it was an amazing place. And, uh, and Michael was a very remarkable guy and a remarkably talented guy. And I would encourage you to go back and uh, listen to some of his music. Um, maybe uh, ignore some of the tabloid uh, nonsense that followed him around through most of his career. And just appreciate him as a remarkably creative and talented man. So, thank you so much for hanging with me. This is not going to be the last time we talk about Neverland, um, but I at least wanted to uh, kind of take you there in the best way that I could.